0: Today, uh, college students, we are praying for you, and we hope that your first week back, if it hasn't already happened, is about to happen or will happen. We're praying for you. And uh, some I heard as as I was getting changed and getting back out here that we had some guests from Tacoa Falls. Thank you for being here. We hope that maybe you can find a home away from home here uh, as you're doing your studies. And so we're honored. Will Ashley, we love you guys and love what you're doing. Uh, in that life group, in that ministry, and and I can't. All I can tell you is that I'm, I'm kind of like this guy. I have ideas, and I just throw things on the wall and see what sticks. And I can't wait to see how our college ministry is going to grow over the next couple of years under their leadership. And so, if you have a Bible device, I want you to turn to Job chapter one, and just ask you to put on your seatbelt. Starting a new series today called Unexpected. And so to do that, I thought I would start by just kind of laying out some scenarios that I would think uh, fall in the category of unexpected circumstances. Things that you find yourself in that you didn't expect. It's Monday morning, you go into the office, and usually you walk in, and people are talking about the weekend. You might see your friend who, who's in the cubicle or in the work area next to you, and they're sitting there, and they go, I, they're not talking. It's a somber moment. And you kind of walk in a little bit spellbound, and you're like, okay. For a few minutes, you just kind of acclimate to the environment, and then you lean over to your coworkers and say, hey, what's going on? And they go, you didn't read your emails, did you? And so you rush to your desk, and you turn on your PC. Well, if you have a PC, you don't turn it on. You wait until it does all the updates, and like, except for your Mac friends who just open the lid, and there it is. Um, <laughs> You're exacerbated already. You're anxious because you, you want to know what's going on. And, and there's the email from your supervisor. says, there's been cutbacks because of productivity, and I need to meet with you and the boss at 9 o'clock. Layoffs. Unexpected, right? Or maybe um, your mom calls you, and you know that your dad had not been well. And so you rush. Uh, she says they've been, they, your dad's been rushed to the ER, but it's, but it's all right at the moment. So you take your time, you, you go ahead, you finish your coffee, you get ready, you get in your car. And you know, th- there's a little glimmer of thought like, what if something happens to my dad? Did I tell him that I love him? Did I apologize for being an idiot in high school? I mean, and so you get to the hospital and you, you, you get off the elevator and you hear the dreaded words, code blue. And so as you're going down the hallway, you, you're trying to remember the room number that your mom told you to all of a sudden realize that the code blue is on the hall where your dad is turning the corner, you find your mom and your siblings weeping in the hallway. It's unexpected, isn't it? Or maybe, I mean, this is, this is a really weird, weird scenario. Maybe you find yourself, you've been saving for years for this dream trip. And your husband's been working diligently to get the reservations done. And, and you're like, oh, this is great, we're going to leave. And so you go drop the kids off at school, your parents. They're going to take care of getting them back and forth to school while you and your husband go on this dream trip. And you leave to go drop the kids off and you return to find a wrecker parked in your driveway. And you pull up and you open your door and say, you know, what can I do? Can I help you? And the driver says, well, we're here to repo your car. And you're like, what? What's going on? Well, you've missed six payments. So you call your husband and say, what's going on? They're they're here to get my car. And then he has to confess to you, well, I didn't want to tell you, but I had paid the trip off, but was hoping that I could work out a deal with the loan agency for the car, but it didn't work out. Maybe you're like me. One spring morning, my mom worked at a daycare and kept this young boy that's about my son's age at this time. And his brother and I were classmates. And I was getting ready to go to school. And my mom never screams, but my mom screamed. And I ran down the hall and she said, Oh my gosh, I can't believe this. And on the news was the story of my classmate having shot three members of his family, including that young boy that my mom kept in the daycare. It's unexpected. You see, the late Herman Cain talks about death and grief. He talks specifically about death. And he said, Death never makes an appointment, does it? It's unexpected. University of South Australia on, on their college page uh, talking to students about missed work or missed classes defines uh, unexpected circumstances like this. Beyond your control for which there is no opportunity to prepare for in advance. The prefix un of the word means not. And expected comes from the word to see or to look at. Expected in its raw form is, is a word we see as It's hope. We expect something to happen, but when something is unexpected, it lends itself to the opposite, a situation that doesn't really build hope. It leaves you feeling hopeless, helpless, and lost. And everyone in here today and joining us online, you are in one of three categories. You're either in an unexpected situation, about to go into an unexpected situation, or you've just resolved one. And no one else understands the depth of pain and heartache you experienced in your unexpected circumstance. No one knows the disappointment. No one knows the hurt, the length of the journey, the amount of time and energy you had to expend to wrestle through that circumstance. Your pain is your pain. And there is not a single individual on the face of this planet that can empathetically understand exactly What you've gone through. It's kind of like when I stood with Laura. At her mom's visitation. And this elderly lady came up and said. I remember losing my mom last year. And my mom said. But no that wasn't my mom. Your pain is your pain. And your loss is your loss. And all of us find ourselves from time to time. In unexpected circumstances. And we ask a question. A question that's been asked for for many centuries, how can a good God allow bad things to happen? You know what, let me rephrase that question because I think it's a little deeper than that. God, why are you letting this happen to me? Don't you know who I am? Don't you see how good I am and the things I've been through? Why are you letting this happen to me? That to me is the more Uh, more applicable question it's not necessarily that you're wrestling with God's goodness, you're wrestling with God's goodness in your life right now because in your own estimation as all of us would admit I don't deserve my unexpected circumstances because I can't explain to you with specificity why God allows bad things to happen but I I can kind of summarize it in four ways, number one God does God's will for his glory, did y'all hear that? God does what God does for his glory, and he is still a good God. Secondly, Satan is alive and well and at work in this world. And as we're going to read in the book of Job, it doesn't make sense that God would allow Satan what he allows him. But let me remind you, Adam and Eve submitted to his authority in the garden. And they reversed the creative order. It was supposed to be god man creation but because Adam and Eve listened to creation, they subjected themselves to him. All of creation yearns for the redemptions of the sons of God. For the redemption. Another reason is that God allows bad things to happen in your life sometimes to correct you. We talked about in that in Hebrews, didn't we? He disciplines us. But you know what? We live in a fallen world and sometimes bad things happen to supposed good people. But why would God allow any of that to happen? For his glory and our growth. For his glory and our growth. And here's the problem. If you allow your grief to consume you, you will begin to project your suffering onto God and begin blaming him for the situation and cut yourself off from the comfort that God provides. When you are busier trying to point the finger back at him and blaming him for your situation, blaming him for your circumstance then you cut yourself off from the peace that God can provide. For some of us in this room, our circumstances of our, are of our own making. I have another family member with a 20-year-plus plus twenty year plus addiction who still does this. You made me this way. You know what it says in Proverbs? Check this out. In the book of Proverbs 19.3, it says, The foolishness... Of man ruins his way and his heart rages against the Lord. That's one end of this spectrum. There's just some circumstances you find yourself in of your own making. But then go to the other end of that spectrum. In a fallen world, fallen things happen, and sometimes it just seems like it just keeps piling on, doesn't it? And we live by a false truth that we think comes from Scripture that God will never allow more to happen to you than you can bear. I'm going to undo that with one word martyr. There are martyrs in Scripture who who paid the price of their life. That's more than anybody can bear, right? That's that's God working in us for His glory and our good. Let me remind you, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's nothing this world can take from you, even your life. Because He promised He'd raise you from the dead. Did He not? Is that not the thrust of the gospel? That sin cannot hold me down in death, that Jesus Christ, by the power of God, will raise me back from the dead. It's a dangerous place, spiritually speaking, when you allow your grief of your circumstances to pull you away from God. Unexpected circumstances. In fact, C.S. Lewis, after losing his wife, expressed these same things in his book, A Grief Observed. One author says it like this, Upon the death of his wife, C.S. Lewis wrote, Meanwhile, there is a God, where is he? There is one, uh, this is one of the most disquieting symptoms. But to go to him when you have a need, desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A slammed door in your face. And the sound of bolting and double bolting from the inside. Lewis was wrestling out this idea I've lost my wife, and where are you? Have you ever found yourself there? Why, God, are you letting this happen to me right now? This wasn't in my plans. This wasn't in my timing. Well, this author goes on to say, Fortunately, Lewis came to grips with his grief, and in the end realized, listen, look at me, that God not only exists, but that he is indeed all-loving despite our suffering. When I allow myself to do this over and over again, I remove myself from the comfort that God can provide for me. And I can choose to park my camper, put my campfire out, put my chairs, and I can roast my hot dogs over that. Or I could yield myself. Because the truth is, is that our unexpected circumstances is an opportunity God, for God to reveal himself Unexpectedly. That's the truth. There is an opportunity to see God fresh and new. Now, that doesn't mean that you enjoy suffering. If you do, we will counsel you at the altar today. I mean, if you really like to hurt yourself, we would love to counsel with you. I don't like pain. You know why? Because pain hurts. All of us have a different pain tolerance. But I can tell you that before my neck surgery, I was in excruciating pain. I would wake up every night as my spine would decompress and I would flop and wallow in the floor for hours because I couldn't sleep. It hurt. And I remember waking up after my decompression surgery and I went, oh, thank you, God, my hand doesn't hurt anymore. You know why? Because pain hurts. I didn't like it. But you know what? That season of testing in my life stretched me to my limit. And I'm not saying I suffered well. I didn't suffer well. It's a humiliating thing to lay in the floor in pain when your two-year-old son wants to play and you can't do a push-up because your, your arm is like this. And you're grieving this idea of having surgery. And I was weeping in front of my two-year-old who doesn't even remember this. Thank God he doesn't remember it. My girls do. And I would say, God, why won't you heal me of this? I don't want to have surgery. I learned the hard way to yield in my unexpected circumstance. So I want to invite you to stand with me. Because what I'd like to do in this message today is paraphrase Job's story. We will be out in time for lunch, I promise you. But I want to focus on Job chapter 1 and I want to read verses 20 through 22. This is after I call Act 1 with Satan. It says, then Job arose, this is in response to all the things that's been taken away from him, and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell to the ground and felt sorry for himself. What does it say in your Bible? Say it again, please. He worshipped. Then he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, and Can I just go ahead and inject this here? We don't have a problem blessing God in the blessing, but we have a problem blessing God in the subtraction. You, you following me? We love it when God does the good stuff, but we look at the bad stuff as God not doing it for our good. You want to you experience worship? Bless God in the subtraction. Then it says in verse 22, though Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Because if he would have... The whole narrative of this book would have been unraveled because God said, Have you considered my servant Job who is upright and righteous? Father, let the words of my mouth, humbly my mouth, and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And if it's not, make my heart right, make our hearts right, prepare our hearts to hear. Because you are our rock, our redeemer, in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody's got the seatbelts on, right? Does anyone need to go to the restroom or or get a dum-dum lollipop? As this book begins, we, we get this picture of Job, which we believe to be one of the oldest books written in the Bible, if not the oldest. The word Job means, ready, hated. His name means hated, much persecuted. More than likely, he lived around the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How do we know that? Well, because he served as a priest to his house. He had seven sons and three daughters. And so he was a priest for his family. In fact, the way that he, he was such a family man. He had seven sons. And so according to the way the text reads. He would go and have dinner at one of his seven sons houses. Each night. All set for seven days of the week. They'd all go there. It kind of reminds me of one of my aunts and uncles. Who every Every Thursday. And my uncle just turned 80. He looks like he's 55. I mean, he is phenomenally in shape. And they get all of their family together. It's kind of rare in this day and time, isn't it? That people, families get together and they break bread. They eat together. It's awesome. That was Job. In fact, Job was such a family man and such a good father. After that, they would have those celebrations every day. The next morning, he'd wake up. And out of his wealth, he would go and make sacrifices For his kids, if perchance they had sinned. We don't know those kind of dads in this culture, do we? We live in a culture where dads have abandoned their families. Fathers like this are rare when they should be the norm. In fact, the text says that he was the greatest of all the men of the East. Let's put that in modern language. He was the most interesting man in the world. And he wasn't in a beer commercial. We see this family man. He he rose early. He loved them and he wanted them to be right with God. You feel the emotional tension surrounding this. But then that's when the story changes in Job chapter 1. We we see how God is interacting with Satan. That's a problem. Who in the world goes and has a an meeting with the, with the enemy? Right? We believe God is holy and just and righteous and he can't have sin in his presence. But yet, he's not only interacting with Satan, he's having dialogue with Satan. And he looks at Satan and he says, have you considered my servant, Job? In fact, if you want to follow along, I'm to, like I said, I'm going to be paraphrasing In verse number 8, he said, there's no one like him. He's blameless, upright. He fears God and turns away from evil. Well, what does Satan say to him? He says, well, does Job fear God for nothing? You have made a hedge about him and his house, everything that he has. You have blessed the work of his hands. So, God, you're the one that's actually doing this. You're puppeting him. Folks, we're not puppets. Job, out of his free will, was dedicated to the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, because Satan says, Well, you know what? If you took your hand off of him, he would, he would probably deny you. He said, You know what? All that he has is in your power, only do not put your, your, your hand upon him. And that breaks us theologically. If we don't interpret this correctly in its context, we could see God not being so good, right? And that's a problem. But is God good? He is absolutely good. He is holy, he is just, and he is righteous. And he is sovereign even over the schemes of what the devil may bring. Whatever the devil can throw at you, whether that be emotionally, spiritually, or even in this text, physically, there's nothing that he can do to you or to me that can thwart the plan of a sovereign God. And so he goes on, and this is where it begins to, just fall apart. The Sabaeans come in and they, kill his, they, they take his livestock, kill his servants. His kids are getting ready for their daily meal. A wind comes and blows the house down and kills all ten of his kids in one fair swoop. And then we get to that passage that we just read. Then Job arose. He tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground. I'm telling you what, if you lost all, three of, all ten of your kids, you'd fall to the ground too. I was telling Emily on our little uh, pre-college journey this week, we were were driving through St. Andrews State Park, and I just vividly remember looking over at her and saying, you know what, I've lost a lot of people in my life, and there's people in my life, if I lost, I'd be sad. But I tell you what, if I ever lost any of you, I'm telling you, it would rip a hole in my heart. You know what I'm talking about. I've got friends that have lost children, and that should not be normal. You should not bury your children. And unfortunately, this is a fallen world we live in, isn't it? It's full of sadness and gloom and darkness and unexpected circumstances. But when I begin to put my hand like this toward God because I believe God caused all of my suffering just because He wants to make me hurt, that's when I close the door of my heart and I don't let God be able to do His work. Job's standing there, and, and we pick up in chapter 2, and we see this, see this uh, second meeting between God and Satan. And, and, I mean, Satan. I mean the Lord has to say to Satan, hey, look, have you considered my servant Job? Well, he did, because he just went and took everything he had. There's no one like him on earth, blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Nothing changed about Job. But listen to what he says, and he still holds his integrity. He still stands in that, although, he said, Satan, you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan says, well, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has is is his life. What did Job say? Naked I came, and naked I will return. Is that not the the, the sum of his life? So Satan says, kind of quoting Job, look, he just said all he has is his life from this end point to this end point. Take your hand off of him. See what happens. So God says, okay, he's in your power, but be sure to spare his life. And Satan goes out and smites him with boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And it was so bad that he was taking scraps to scrape off the boils while he was sitting in ashes. This man went from something to nothing lost his family, lost all that he owned. He was a a cauldron of emotion. Think about grief. Grief is a funny thing. Because when you grieve, there's a lot more in your emotional mix than just sadness. There's anger, there's disappointment, there's all kinds of stuff. And it's like, you're sitting here dealing with grief, and sometimes you pull out of the cauldron, oh, I'm feeling angry today. And you put that back in, and you pull out, I'm feeling depressed today. And You're kind of doing this. Sometimes you just kind of step into the cauldron and you're being wrapped up with so many emotions. You don't know what you're feeling. You're downcast. You're hopeless. And you look up to heaven wanting some kind of hope, some kind of comfort. To explain the situation that you're in, because you think the explanation logically will help you to feel better. But, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't learned this yet, your heart and your head don't like each other. You can try to explain away what you feel, but you feel what you feel. And in this culture, we feel and don't think. We take emotions to determine truth, and we try to take truth to discredit emotions. It's a divine tension. In our lives, that if you solve one, you hurt the other. We are emotional beings and we are logical beings, and those two things come together. Here's Job, and Job is sure of himself I am righteous, I've done nothing wrong, and God's allowing this to happen to me. It's not the only place that we read about this. In Luke chapter 22, right before Jesus is about to be crucified. He's having a dialogue with Peter He's already changed his name to Peter But in this moment He looks at him And he talks to him In his original name Simon And he says Simon Behold Satan Has demanded permission To sift You all That's plural Change the way I looked at this verse Satan Has desired to sift you all He's talking about the group He says But I have prayed for You, Simon, individually, that your faith will not fail. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brother. So what is the truth? Two truths we see in this. Number one, Jesus and Satan talked outside of the the temptation. And that makes us uncomfortable. Doesn't it? Not unless you realize that God is sovereign. Say sovereign. Sovereign. God is sovereign even over the devil. And whatever the devil might throw at you, God can use for his good. But here's the second truth. Peter did get sifted. Y'all know what this is? It's a sifter. Yeah. yeah. Let's pray. Now, it's a flower sifter. And what do you use a flower sifter for? To sift the flower because you want to get the fine flower out of it. It's a separation. And that's what's going on here. There is a Separation. Satan wanted to separate the disciples from one another and separate their faith from them. Because Peter would even say, no, 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 no. I'll die for you, Jesus. I will go to the grave for you, Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Before the cock crows, you will deny you even know me three times. So let me ask you the question. Did God allow Satan to sift Peter? The answer there is yes. He said, but when you come back, strengthen the rest of them. You and I need to attach ourselves to this truth. Point number one. God is more than aware of your circumstances. Do you believe that? God's not sitting in heaven on his throne and Jesus sitting by him and just kind of sitting there and going, what, You you mean Fred just did this? Oh my gosh, I can't believe that. I'm I'm spellbound. God is not taken aback by the scenario that you find yourself in. God allowed that scenario to happen. Why? For his glory and your growth. Say glory. Glory. Growth. Growth. And when we seek to find God in our circumstances, he teaches us. I don't know what your situation is today. You may feel like that God's three million miles away, but let me remind you what Jesus said in Matthew 10:30, that the very hairs of your head are numbered, even Crosby's. They're just in the follicle. I' was just seeing if y'all are paying attention. Everything. About you, God knows. And don't you want to put your life in the hand of a God who knows where you've been, where you are, and where you're going, but yet He still loves you? While you were sinning, while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Did you hear that? While you were sinning, Christ died for you. He looked at your life and saw where you were, and He had a plan for you to put your trust in Him, and He is very much aware of your circumstances. When Jesus comes to the tomb and Lazarus has died, and Mary and Martha and all those around them, they're distraught and they're upset. People debate it, like, why did Jesus weep? Shortest verse of the Bible, why did Jesus weep? You think he wept over Lazarus? No. He didn't weep over Lazarus. He knew what was about to happen to Lazarus. Do you think he wept for the crowds? Nope, because he knew he was about to glorify God, by raising the dead. Let me tell you why he wept, why I believe he wept. An author wrote it like this. Jesus, in the moment, with Mary, in her grief, shared her grief. You and I follow the great and good shepherd which John had just written about. And now is being illustrated that here's some close friends of his, and one of his best friends die because he knew i had to he held back he waited days before he went lazarus was sick lazarus died but he shows up to comfort them and in that comfort he's with them in their unexpected circumstances not shaming them not speaking down to them but holding their hand that's the kind of jesus you and i serve and if you and i second point will will look For God, in those unexpected circumstances, we might find him. God will reveal himself, his way, in our circumstances. So I want you to to take a moment, I want you to flip over to Isaiah, chapter 63. Pretty much the back end of Isaiah, God's already pronounced judgment against the northern kingdom. He's already promised that the temple was going to be destroyed. This is somewhere around 700 B.C. when Isaiah is writing these things, long before most of it comes to pass. Northern kingdom is taken into captivity around 722 B.C. Judah and Benjamin, that becomes that that one kingdom separate that's still following the Davidic line. By the time we get to 586 B.C., the temple is destroyed and they go into captivity into Babylon. And Isaiah is confessing through prayer this idea of the loving kindness of God and the connection that the people of God had with God in Israel and the connection between the two. But then he says this, starting in verse 15. He says, look down from heaven and see your holy and glorious habitation. Where is your zeal and your mighty deeds, the stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me let me let me paraphrase that God where are you he says for you are our father though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us oh you O oh Lord are our father our redeemer from old is your name so he says why oh Lord do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you Ladies and gentlemen, we harden our heart. God does harden the heart for his purposes and his ways. But when I get stuck in my grief, I will harden my heart and I will cut myself off from God. How can God comfort my heart if I say, God, nope? The temple may have still been intact. And Isaiah knew what was coming. But he looks at God and says, you've abandoned and left us. You've left us, as it says in that last verse, like those whom you've never ruled. Would you think that Isaiah is feeling the weight of the loneliness of the people of God? You think he's feeling the, the discouragement, the anger toward his countrymen for, for rebelling against God? Don't you think he's feeling that? But here's the cool thing. I love this passage. He says in, in 64, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would quake at your presence. As fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes the water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations would tremble at your presence. Where have we read that before? We just studied it in Hebrews when we looked at Exodus 19, when God shows up on Mount Sinai. It says, Make a boundary, because if they come up much closer than that, they'll probably die. No, they won't die. Probably die. They will die. Listen to verse 3. You ready? Listen to it carefully. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. I want you to sit in that for just a moment. Because we've just defined unexpected circumstances in the negative, right? We've talked about, you know, loss of job, loss of a family member, crazy stuff happening. But when God shows up, He does unexpected things for His glory. God does things in your life that you can't imagine. Because when you're stuck in the circumstance, fixed on that, you don't take the time to look at what God is doing. To have the faith and the temperance to see what the process might lead through. You did things that we did not expect. Kind of sounds like Ephesians 3, 20. Now to him who is able to do far abundantly beyond all that we think or ask according to his power, his dynamite that works in us. Think about Elijah after he sparred off with the priests and he watched God consume a sopping wet sacrifice. Fire from heaven. But then Jezebel threatens his life and he runs away to Mount Horeb. But while he was there, God shows up And that mountain quaked, and the winds blew, and I'm sure it was scary, but let me remind you, if you haven't heard this verse, he says, but then there was a still, small voice. Your circumstances will scream loud in your ears to where you can't hear the still, small voice of God. God knows your circumstances. He is more than aware of that. When we're looking, we will see God working in those circumstances and as you go on down in that chapter to verse eight, he says this, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, you are our potter and all of us are the work of your hand. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse six, it says the same kind of thing. Can I not, this is God speaking, O house of Israel, deal with you as a potter does? Declares the Lord, behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. If you harden your heart toward God in your situation, I can guarantee you, you will fail to see him at work. You'll focus on your feelings, your loss. You'll lose sight of the vision of God where he might be leading you. But what would it look like if we held to this truth, point number three, that in our unexpected, God God will respond unexpectedly. Don't put God in a box and say, God, if you don't do it this way, then it can't be you. God does things beyond our comprehension and what we can understand. As James chapter 5, verse 11 points to, Job was a man of perseverance. That in the dealings of the Lord, it showed that God was full of compassion and was merciful. What a great truth that no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, God is a merciful God. It may not feel like it, but it's true. In fact, as you go back and you read the book of the book of Job, you know what it is? It's a, it's a dialogue between Job and these three supposed friends. And those friends are trying to convince him of a poison that's even in our culture today. If you do good, good things happen. If good things are happening to you, that means you're good. What does the Bible teach about our goodness? It doesn't exist. There's no one good, no not one. I cannot stand in my own righteousness because I don't have any. Y'all catch that, right? And they're trying to tell him, you know what, if you would just repent and tell God you're sorry for what you've done, things will get better. And Job keeps repeatedly saying, I've done nothing wrong. Let me stand before God and plead my case. How many of you have done that before? When I get to heaven, God and I are going to have a little conversation. I don't want to be near you when you do that, because when you get to heaven, I don't think that's going to be your response. I think you're going to be just like Job. You're going to drop to your knees and worship. That's what I think is going to happen personally. If I could just tell God a few things, or what? What are you going to do if you went to God and said, "Well, God, I, you did that to me, and I can't stand it." What? Well, you think God's going to be moved by that? Job quickly finds out. Starting in Job 38, God shows up in a whirlwind and begins to speak to all of them, including his wise counsel. Where were you? He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth and told the sea to come this far? Where were you when I raised the clouds and the sun and the moon and the sky? Can you, by your power, lift up the clouds and bring forth rain? Where were you when the, the goats were giving birth on the mountains? Where were you? He said, you know what? You want to give me counsel, then speak. Where were you? In verse 40, after God has explained this for a couple of chapters, it says that the Lord says to Job, Will the fault finder, talking about Job, contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Job answered the Lord and said, you ready? Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my mouth, hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will, I will not answer even twice, and I'll add nothing more. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? And judgment there not necessarily being that he, God, Job has done nothing wrong. God allowed these things to happen to silence Satan And prove himself glorious. That was his judgment. And in that God committed no evil and no sin. So you go on to chapter 42. And Job answers the Lord and says. I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. If you underline and mark anything. Mark it. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know, Job says, hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you will instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. Job yielded. And I think for us today, that's the thing that's holding us back. From being able to, to see life in our unexpected circumstances. I'm not telling you that it's not going to be hard. It's hard. I'm not going to tell you that you're going to suffer well. I, I, I can't tell you what's going to happen to you the next time you find yourself in an unexpected circumstance. What I do know is this. First Peter 5 verse number 6 says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time or proper time. Last point on your bulletin should say this, yield to God in unexpected circumstances. Let me remind you of what he said in Isaiah 64.8. He said, but now, Lord, we are the clay and you are the potter. All of us are like work in your hand. You see, the thing is, is I can put this clay in this sifter, guess what's going to happen? Nothing. Because this is how God sees me. He doesn't see me as the flower that's in this sifter. He sees me as a lump of clay. He sees you as a lump of clay. And it reminds me of a lady I used to go to church with many years ago. Her name was Miss Gloria. And I remember talking to Miss Gloria one time because I'm, I'm, I'm certain if she was here today and she could tell her story that you would leave here going, going. man, I thought I had it bad. The suffering that she endured in her life, the The abuse. I remember her talking one day about us being clay. And she had this joy all the time about her. It was contagious. And I'm sitting here looking at this piece of clay and, you know, I just took and mashed it in my hand. And there's little cracks and there's folds in it. And she said, you know, when I look at my life the right way, God takes the tears of my suffering. To wet the clay In order to re-smooth those cracks And reform me to what He wants me to be Have you yielded your life To the sovereign hand of God That no matter what kind of circumstances come You know that He's got you It ain't going to be easy It's never easy Pain hurts But trusting the hands of the potter To make you what he wants you to be, that, my friend, is a statement of faith. So, would you stand with me? We're going to sing one last song before we leave today. But I'm going to challenge you to do something different. This altar is open. Some of our pastors will be down here at the front. If you want and need somebody to pray for you, intercession is biblical. Sometimes you just don't know what to pray and you need somebody to pray for you. But maybe you do need to come down and say, you know what, Lord, I repent. I have have blamed you far too long for my circumstance and today I'm yielding to your sovereign hand and letting you work the clay how you see fit. Father, in the name of Jesus, as we come to this time of invitation, I pray that you would minister to our people, that you would touch them today. God, we would yield to your sovereign hand And we commit our lives to let you do whatever it is that you want to do with us. In Jesus' name, amen.